0: So last week, I was lucky enough to hang with two interesting African-American entrepreneurs who are in South Africa on business. Uh, Talib Graves-Mans is the entrepreneur in residence with Google for Entrepreneurs and Code2040 at the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. Now, Talib is also the co-founder of three startups, Rainbow Me Kids, Point A, B, and Life on Autopilot.
1: My name is Talib Graves-Mans. I came here from Durham, North Carolina, to learn about business opportunities in South Africa, the culture, um, and the people. And uh, I've been here for six or seven days, maybe eight, I don't remember anymore. I've been having such a good time. And uh, we dig into more of what I do as we move forward.
0: Now, Brian Jordan-Jack is the other African-American entrepreneur I chatted with. He's an aerospace engineer and a celebrated commercial airline pilot for a leading global carrier. He's also had a long stint working in investment banking, and currently he's leveraging all his technical training, professional experience, and impressive network into launching various ventures in new media and international property investments. My name is Brian Jordan-Jack, and uh,
2: when I'm in South Africa, I'm known as Batandwa, Uh, so I I come to South Africa frequently for business, and I am basically wanting to replicate what I've been able to do uh, throughout my history as a as a professional pilot, as a uh, deal maker and connector of uh, like-minded people. I want to basically bring that energy to uh, South Africa, to Johannesburg, and the African continent all together.
1: Yeah, so I'm um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, right? Um, entrepreneur on both sides of my family for three generations, um, my maternal side and my paternal side. As a result, I have a high tolerance for uh, for what goes along with building a startup, which is risk. Right now, I am serving in as, as a role as an entrepreneur in residence with Google for Entrepreneurs, and that's powered by Code 2040, which is an organization based in Silicon Valley, right, that is focused on getting more Blacks and Latinos into technology, um, tech education, entrepreneurship, and ultimately access to the venture capital they need to be able to grow their funds. And um, this organization was created by uh, Laura Weidman Powers and Tristan Walker, who met while in graduate school in California. Uh, but it was built out of the need uh, to increase the numbers of representation at Silicon Valley companies because the numbers are dismally low, right? Less than 2%, as I'm sure many of the listeners know. And you know about what's happening in Silicon Valley across these major companies. So the 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 flagship of the organization of Code 2040 is called the Fellows Program, where they find uh, your top tier uh, computer science talent, college talent throughout the nation. Um, they apply for the Fellows Program. They come to Silicon Valley for the summer. They get an internship at a tech company. And ultimately, uh, they build a pipeline to get those people into the jobs, right, to fill the needs, uh, the reaction has been really picking up steam over the past uh, six months. I think with uh, Intel just jumping on with $1.4 million contribution to Code 2040, um, very strong relationships with the VCs, uh, the companies in the Valley, and it's uh, it's, tr- it's been trending and doing very well. That uh, has happened for the first couple years of the organization, and over the past year, we've been focusing on entrepreneurship. That's where I come in, so I was a part of the first class of Entrepreneur in Residence. It was three of us, myself, uh, somebody in Austin, Texas, and somebody in Chicago. And the whole concept here is um, we have Silicon Valley, which has its big gaps, right, uh, on the tech education side and career side and also on the entrepreneurship side. So how they ask the question, like, well, how do we impact communities outside of Silicon Valley with more resources so that people can grow their ventures, primarily, yes, blacks and Latinos? And that's where I came in as part of this first cohort to grow my businesses. I am, uh, I have three businesses that I'm currently operating, um, right now. So they give you money. They give you $40,000 and, uh, and no strings attached, uh, seed money for you to be able to grow your venture, um, uh, and, uh, a lot of, uh, networking to be able to help raise money, uh, find co-founders, uh, develop your products. Etc. cetera. And I've been in that role for 10 months. I have an additional uh, eight months left with it. Going into March at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas at the Interactive Festival, we're going to release um, five more entrepreneurs in residence. Um, and all of these entrepreneurs in residence um, in total will be eight and they will have uh, office space and they get their stipend and they get to come to the Valley quarterly for meetings to help you grow your business and to network. Um, and those new entrepreneurial residents will be announced in Austin, Texas in March, which is going to be great to have more people coming on board.
0: So I have a question for you, and it's a tough question because it's often on our podcast, the African Tech Roundup, we point to the differences in the way ecosystems run in Silicon Valley versus various places on the continent, Cape Town, Joburg, Nairobi, Kigali, Lagos, Cairo, Tunis. And, you know, you mentioned that people are essentially going to hopefully get a leg up, an opportunity to learn and and find their feet. There's unencumbered cash they're given to to make their dreams happen. On the continent, there are no such cushy starts. And from the get-go, the only metrics that matter often are revenue and profitability, revenue being the most important because it's usually a survival uh, survival metric. Do you not think that, um, you know, throwing that sort of bone at somebody, essentially giving them the comfort of not having to deal with the reality of what a startup essentially is, which is just this risk, this scary place to be, this opportunity to fail and just crash and burn. If you take away all that and just offer them comfort, aren't you really setting them up to not thrive? Because, I mean, that's not essentially the the environment some of the biggest startups and the most successful startups of the world seem to come out of. They seem to come out of a very hard place, a very difficult, striving environment.
1: So that's relative, right? So what? the $40,000, right, in macro terms, is not a lot of money, right? The whole idea of giving you $40,000 is to kind of level the playing field, right? So for your African-American and your Latino entrepreneurs in the United States, compared to their Caucasian counterparts, right, who, based on the data, have more resources to be able to grow their business and have the legs to be able to do that. So my answer is no, right? It's $40,000. That allows you to pay your rent, Invest some more money in your venture to get you to the point where you can raise c- serious seed money. It gives you peace of mind, right? That's basically what it's prepared to do. I can't speak to what's happening on the continent because I've only been here for seven, to eight days. When I come back next time, I'll be better prepared to be able to speak to that. But that's kind of the way we look at the the forty thousand dollars associated with this type of seed money is to give you the peace of mind and and um, some cash to be able to to be able to grow your venture. So Google underwrites the program. So they cut a check to code 2040, which then disseminates that into the various communities. In
2: terms of the continent, I, I live in now in the Middle East and I make regular visits to, uh, the continent, Sub-Saharan Africa, Rwanda, Kenya, uh, South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Morocco, Algeria. So what I'm getting at is that in the, in the same sense that there's a different, uh, ecosystem and microcosm for each of those places that, that you may want to operate as a startup. As a business, as an investor, uh, the same nuance you have to take into these instances in the United States. The uh, startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley very much different than the startup ecosystem that might exist in Nashville, in the southeastern United States, in Raleigh-Durham, where Talib is uh, based, in Detroit. In uh, you, you get my point. So, so what I'm saying is that is this: um, you may have. A situation where the Google Code 2040 system begins to become so successful because you start you, you begin to tap into talent that you otherwise may not have encountered, and so I think w- what we could do is take that strategy and then bring it to the continent. Let's see if that hasn't, let's say, been the the order of business, so to speak. Uh, then let's try. You know, I mean, because like I said, you, you may encounter uh, those. That you've been missing out on so far and that just starts to develop in itself a more a newer school of, of talent of genius talent in fact
0: so i'd like to tell if you want to speak any more on that let me give you a sense of where i was coming from the question what's happening on the african continent every within a stone's throw of us in any direction there is a co-working space an incubator an accelerator and these are words that are bandied about it's very popular pr at the moment to be a bank with like a little accelerator program on the side to be a money attached to them? well often often money is attached to them but again the question for people who truly understand what makes a google google is it real money is it real intent or is it tokenism uh, given what the real needs are. And in Africa, again, it, re- it usually comes down to either you mean it or you don't. And in covering tech on the continent, we find very few people do mean it. And unfortunately, this cuts across the grain, whether it's VC interests um, uh, large corporates that you know you get what you get what i'm saying so i I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of
1: is this really working is this really i'll give you an example of how how it works this Is i'll break it down so the way code 2040 built a network right we call it a family of people so right now you have you have um, two groups of people you have the student talent the computer science student talent right that goes through the program and they go into the value and they develop networks there right and then you have the entrepreneurs right so just Four months ago, I was doing a crowdfunding campaign for one of the startups I was working on called Rainbow Me, which is about increasing diversity in kids' entertainment, right? We were going to do a crowdfunding campaign. I'm in the Valley for a meeting, right? And because of the network of Code 2040 through the Fellows Program, I meet a young man who just got finished doing an internship at Indiegogo, right? Right? a Latino young man who's part of our network, of our family. And when I told him I'm working on doing a crowdfunding campaign and I want to raise $35,000, he says, all right, want to plug you into the network of the people at the organization that will help me get it done, right? That network effect is very valuable, even more valuable than the $40,000 because what we have is limited access to the resources of people and the network effect, which I think is pivotal in being able to grow any venture, whether that's technology or not. Uh, we have over approximately a hundred, um, fellows who have graduated the program that are currently working in roles. And I can pick up a phone or send a WhatsApp or a text message to those people and they're going to open up their Rolodex to me and I'm going to do the same for them. Um, so I, I'm not, again, not too sure about what's happening on the, com- on the continent, but I think it's very important to open up the Rolodex to relationships. Right now we're sitting at a table with four people and everybody has their device out and, and contacts are accessible. We're willing to exchange. I get you. You hit the nail on the head. So
0: I'm, I'm trying to get to the value uh to, to the value of what you know these programs can possibly deliver. It seems from the outside looking in, okay? From Africa looking into Silicon Valley, there's a culture of really long runways. So you see huge companies, your Ubers, um, the WhatsApps of this world who are the toasts of Silicon Valley, except w- we're not so sure why in Africa because as far as we're concerned, we don't see any money. Uh so let me I, I just want to clarify that
2: what you mean is that you're talking about a disconnection between the the startups themselves, the, the materially uh, popular startup, the new kids on the block, and cool kids on the block, startups who might not be, let's say, showing
0: revenue at at this moment. So here's the thing: there's there seems to be a culture of encouraging startups to come out of, to, to come up that don't seem rooted in the reality of what businesses should be, which is based in sound fundamentals and, and solid models. So it's all good to have all these users and to have all... I want to
2: respond real quick. We had this exact conversation yesterday because we, it is a, is a valid question, valid point. What it is, you do have some companies that are receiving uh, a pass, let's say, early on in their development, being valued in the Uber example at higher levels than, let's say, a FedEx, a company like FedEx, who's a large shipping company and airline that has been around since 1978, whereas Uber, only five years old, has a higher valuation, and we don't understand the model yet and can't see, let's say, the viability and the revenue. What I'll say about that is this. the These models that we're seeing, like and Amazon, for example, are strikingly different than traditional companies and models. So the revenue models that you, you're you going to see are also going to be be different. So you may see a lag in revenue, but I guarantee you that the innovation that surrounds the product is the innate value in those companies. And that is actually where the investors, where the shareholders are bent, are, are basically banking. They're banking on the innovation itself because it it could be, for example, in 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 the Uber example, in the WhatsApp example, that eventually you have those traditional companies that that will want to and that already have started to integrate these models into their own ecosystems. For example, businesses now directing uh, directly uh, having accounts with an Uber, as just as, as an example. Now, if you were early on as an investor um and 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 that wasn't even a possibility at the time but the let's say the the founders were able to to basically sell you on the fact that where we are now is very much different than where we'll be in 10 years and this technology that we own okay is basically the only technology like it that exists on the planet and we're already in markets that are multinational so in the same instance like my company, my group, Axiom, like Talib's uh, company, Life on Autopilot, what we're doing is essentially kind of breaking down borders in terms of being multinational startups. And the ones that you're mentioning are multinational startups. So they're encountering different challenges than a traditional company would because traditional companies don't start out as a multinational. So revenue models will be different than what uh, we've we've been used to. In summary, I'll say that what we're seeing is a kind of an evolution in terms of the startup culture what we're witnessing really is a is a pivot and i think it's a great time for us for our society and our and our, our generation because it means that people young people who have ideas don't have to be disheartened or distracted or dissuaded from actually carrying out that idea because they see revenue is not the only benchmark that we're looking at anymore. We're looking at innovation. We're looking at can your product, you know, change change someone's lives? Can everyone be a part of it? Everyone top to bottom are using Uber and WhatsApp and other conne- you know, connecting uh uh technologies. So that's that's the kind of the future. You know, we're looking at another 10 to 20 to 30 years from now and it's going to be a very much more Connected society, your home's connected, our, you know, inter- internet of things. And that's a new space. It's very, it's extremely new. So I guess attaching it to the traditional models, like we're, we're away from the traditional models now, which is a good thing, I think, because that means that we're, we're actually now writing a new chapter about what it means to be successful in business we know the revenue is going to come so you have i think you have to be patient and i think you have to be kind of ahead in terms of innovation
0: so are you with him on that talib sort of
1: i i mean i'm all about revenue right what i I kind of see and i'm not an expert right i'm not a venture capitalist right not yet i will be in shortly but for some reason i get a feeling from a significant number of founders that the success is raising vc Right, the success is raising twenty million dollars, fifty million dollars in VC, ten million dollars in VC. Like that is the the benchmark of success, right? It's not. Benchmark of success is building a profitable business with revenue, so you can pay back your investors if you even need to raise any, right? And that's my stance on on the way I approach all. All my interactions in business. It's a popular mindset from the VCs, right? They want to be able to get their return, but they also know that, you know, only one in nine startups make it. So, yeah, so the risk is high. So that, so they need to have that, that you know, that, that 30x return uh, out of their portfolio that happens, you know, on, on an annual, biannual basis to balance out the books, right? And I get that. So they're throwing money at things that might not be successful. That's part of the risk factor. Um, which I totally agree with. We would not have an Uber. We would not have a Facebook. We would not have a Twitter. We would not have all Elon Musk products. We would not have anything. So you, you have to have that risk in there. Um, going back to where I stand, because I represent African-American and Latino entrepreneurs, is that um, the statistic is something like one out of every seven entrepreneurs compared to whites that are African-American and Latino get a chance to talk to a VC. And then when we do get a deal, it's something like only 60 cents on the dollar, Right. My charge is to help level out the playing field so we have access to, so we can afford to fail. Because right now, we're not getting enough access so we can afford to fail and have the same risk factor associated with our businesses. And that's a problem. And I'm sure that's probably a big problem on the continent as well. So you guys are straddling two worlds, really. One, uh, where there's structural
0: issues that won't be solved, however successful Silicon Valley might be corporately. There are structural issues that you have to fight for and represent um, individually and as part of a greater community, in this case, the African-American community. And the same is true here. I mean, yeah, without getting all nationalists, <laughs> not a lot's changed in many respects um, as far as who controls capital and how and how deals are done and who gets to participate. With that said, I want you to speak specifically to the businesses you guys run uh, the enterprises you've started, even the ones you started and failed at. Talk me through your approach to making it work. Factor your background, your what you've learned professionally as a pilot, an engineer, as an entrepreneur who's grown up in an entrepreneurial family. Because even th- that's not something I can even relate to because I'm a second generation professional, first generation entrepreneur. So talk us through some
1: of those things. We'll talk about failure first, right? I believe that uh, is uh, instrumental. Right. And developing as a business owner, as an entrepreneur and working with other entrepreneurs. And I'll tell you about my biggest failure. Right. My biggest failure was in real estate coming out of uh 2008, 2009 financial crisis in the United States. So my story is I worked my ass off making, you know, twenty three thousand dollars a year. U.S. Right. Uh, when I graduated from college doing retail work uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, hustling, building up my credit so I could buy properties. Right. My objective was to buy, you know, have four, five, six properties. Um, by the time I was um, 28 years old, which was the same year as the financial crisis. Right. So I acquired four properties and um, they all were deeply affected, you know, with 40 percent loss in market value in 2008. But my objective was to build equity in these properties and have one hundred thousand dollars cash by the time I was 28 to reinvest in other ventures. And that did not happen. And I had to reevaluate my entire business model. I'm still exiting one of those properties. Right. Because it tanked. And I bought my property in uh, primarily in Hampton, Virginia, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. So when America sneezed, the black community caught a cold, you know, and um, we're still coming out from the bottom of that. So when it comes down to failure, I think that it's very important to talk about the lessons that we learn from it. In reference to real estate now, I do a lot more due diligence on a micro and a macro level when I'm looking at deals that I want to get involved with or offer any counsel on. In reference to some of the ventures that I'm working on now, I have a Life on Autopilot and a product called Skycap that I'm one of the co-founders on. Uh, we have a really great team of two other individuals. And our first product is a cap carrier that holds baseball caps um, during transit so they won't get crushed. And we own the patent for the product. Um, we're looking for, currently looking for investors uh, to grow that venture. Uh, it's a lifestyle brand, luggage brand. I would encourage the listeners to go check it out at uh, www.lifeonautopilot.com. Uh, and check it out. Uh, so that venture is really close to my heart. We worked on that for years in R&D to get it to the point where it's at now. Another venture that uh, we created is called Black Wall Street Homecoming, um, which celebrates the rich history of uh, black commerce communities throughout the United States. It was a very prominent one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and another one in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. So we created an event called Black Wall Street Homecoming this past October to celebrate the um, the history of Durham's Black Wall Street. Two very large businesses still exist, Mechanics and Farmers Bank, which is one of, I believe, of 20 African-American-owned banks in the nation uh, that still exist, as well as um, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance, an insurance company that is African-American-owned in North Carolina. So we created this event uh, to celebrate the past, but usher in the future of innovation. So we invited our venture capital guests uh, from Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., to an event. We had 400 guests, and we discussed deal flow. In specifics, we talked about one deal, which is a very interesting one on the continent because I'm walking around. I see all the hair extensions is the nine billion dollar hair weave um, hair extension uh, market. So there's a deal called Maven hair that a guy who we went to Hampton University with built, which creates a marketplace for the selling of hair extensions where beauticians can sell it and in turn get back a percentage of the sale. It's an awesome deal. So we invited the venture capitalists out that invested in that deal, which ended up actually being two African-American firms that came out. They were part of the investment syndicate, Cross-Culture Venture Capital, um, and also Impact America Fund, right? And through the VCs that were in the room for two days, we had over a $100 million of venture capital funds that could be dispersed into various businesses. And we had 400 guests. We had seven pitches, Shark Tank style, inside of a black-owned restaurant on the same street, right, in Durham. And it went really well. And um, we're going to do more of that. We're going to have a presence at South by Southwest in Austin. We're going to do something in Washington, D.C., which has a very rich um, black commerce community there, and and continue to grow these, right? We'd we'll love to be able to make it an international thing where we come to South Africa and bring the same concept here with celebrating deal flow and bringing out venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and allowing people to open up their Rolodex, right, and help each other out. Another venture that I work on is called Words Live which is about increasing literacy through lyrics, which is based in Washington, D.C. And the founder just finished up an accelerator at uh, Halcyon in Georgetown, which is a social entrepreneurship accelerator. I'm really proud of the work that he's doing. Um, You can check that out at Words Live. It's uh, W-O-R-D-S-L-I-I-V-E.com. And I also have my consulting company where I do marketing and finance consulting for startups, small and medium-sized businesses. Um, primarily in the United States, but as long as I come, well, the more I come back here, i like to get some deals happening in South Africa. The one thing we have in common, when I say
0: we, I mean being based in South Africa, and and African Americans seem to have in common is living in a highly racialized society. Uh, tell me if ever, you know, the the very strong emphasis on black pride and growing The African American tech community, entrepreneurship community, being specific to that constituent. Tell me if there's ever any negative spin on being committed to that specific aim in the context of a very globalized
1: uh, environment in the world that we live in. Yes. So um, we have people, not many, right? Who say, well, why is this? Why are you guys segmenting yourselves? Why are you solely focused on this? But everything we build goes back to the data. The organization Code 2040 is built off of the data point that the year in 2040 is a tipping point where the minority populations become the majority populations, right? If we're building a better America, right? And our, our demographics are changing. We want to make sure that the people that is changing into have the tools and the resources they need in order to make America great and to continue to build and to iterate. So that's my answer to anybody who brings up that question. Just like, do you want America to be great? If so, we have to provide resources to these people who are going to grow, who are growing the economy. Then I drop the mic. That's it. You know, if anybody disagrees with that, then that's a much different issue that will require sitting down and with a, um, a moderator.
0: So this is a data-driven decision you've made as a businessman. There are no ideological worldviews le- leaking into the things you do. This is now a personal question. I mean, is, this, is it purely a data s-
1: situation for you? I mean, it's also personal for me. Um, it's no misconception that people do business with people they're comfortable doing business with. Third-generation entrepreneur, uh, great-grandmother was a seamstress, grandfather's a mechanic, other grandfather's a taxi driver, my father sold apparel, my mother works in real estate. And I can honestly say at this point, about 95% of the money that's coming to my household has been exchanged to African-American dollars. I'm the anomaly. This is not, not, not normal, but I recognize that it is possible— um, to circulate dollars more when, within some communities, right? I am not a proponent of having total insular communities, though. I think that in order to grow in the form of capitalism and helping out, you have to include other people, especially if you're building t- tech companies. You want as many users as possible, right? So that I mean, it has to go into your design.
0: So you talk me through some of the, your businesses, and I want you to factor your background, learnings, what you studied professionally, your jumps from industry to industry, the failings, what comes out on the other side? I'll
2: give you some highlights. I, I would say it's a unique uh, path that I've taken, and I I've always recognized that. For one, I'm the only uh, professionally trained uh, pilot in my family. The other parts of my family are in, are in medicine, as uh, professional uh, medical doctors, a family of educators. So when I took the initiative to go into engineering as a background to prepare me for flying as a profession, I knew that I had a passion for flying itself. It's a very romantic kind of undertaking, flying an airplane, like having the opportunity to handle the controls. If you have, if you haven't done it, all the listeners go to the airport, find someone who's a flight instructor, get in the airplane and take a lap around the pattern. It's, it's very much a, con- a a direct connection to nature in that, in that standpoint. So, uh, so I wanted to, to go from what I could do as a Professionally as a pilot, into what I could do individually as a as an entrepreneur and as a business person. In my upbringing, it was there were always entrepreneurs around, but it was never really anyone to go to directly to say how do how do you make that happen. So I I took initiative from let's say going from a professional pilot instructor to going into the business community and using that as a tool. To barter for skill, particularly when you're flying privately, you encounter a lot of business people. So that's, that's one. Secondly, it was like an MBA program because on the flight, each flight time on average for us is an hour and a half, two hours. If it's West Coast, it's longer. And during that time, you do have the opportunity to discuss a lot of, uh, items, let's say going on with, with that particular deal. If you're dealing with a real estate, uh, investment, uh, professional, someone who's a, who's an owner, who's doing deals for their own companies. You encounter attorneys, you encounter uh, medical doctors who have their own businesses, who own the real estate that their practices are in. So what I did was kept my eyes and ears open throughout that whole process. I was able to parlay that into an account executive position at a national bank in the US. And I did that and learned the finance business, really, I mean, in detail from top to bottom, which is which is not something that all of us get to do unless we're a finance uh, major. Normally, going into to working at a, at a Wall Street bank, if you're in the U.S. or if you or if you're in uh, any other uh, place in the world where you have you know uh, finance institutions where you can go and and start there and kind of under, understand the the levels as you matriculate naturally up the uh, ranks to executive. So going directly from a private pilot. Or I should say pilot who was flying commercially for an executive, uh, group of people. Cause it's a misconception. I want to clear up all the, uh, proper terms, right? So a private pilot means that you can just fly people. I could train you to be a private pilot in a month, right? So a pilot who, who flies professionally for anyone is a commercial pilot. That means that you're paid to do that, uh, specifically for anyone who, who kind of charters you or pays you or you do that on demand, right? So now, I, now I've elevated to the point of international wide body pilot, which is a whole nother animal, right? But in that, it allows me to travel to different jurisdictions. I get to do a lot of market research on all of my travels, and that kind of separates out where I think my business is able to, to do things in a way that is a lot more, let's say, dynamic than other like older joggernaut companies, right? So we're, I'm a lot dynamic, more dynamic in that, you know, I can do research in four or five different cities in four or five different countries in 30 days. So my company, Axiom, which basically specializes in real estate transactions, real estate investments, consulting and media and film through partnerships. Through financial partnerships and through other business to business partnerships within the United States, on the continent, in South Africa, in Kenya, in Rwanda. We want to basically give, I mean, continent wide, actually, because there's no, there's no limit in terms of who we're willing to partner with. Uh, so if the listeners out there, they have these ideas, they've already been drumming up by all means, you know, uh, they can get in contact with your show or, or with me directly and we can kind of start that conversation because my, standpoint is, is that it's all about relationships. All the successful businesses that I've had were were done through relationships that were um, kind of massaged and built over time, not something that happened one-off. So when we talk about failures, you know, those were my failures when I was putting a lot of energy into a one-off investment, into a, into a situation where, you know, I would partner with people and they say, okay, this is the event or this is the one-off project that everyone is just going to make a windfall from. And then it falls through because there's no relationship building. There's just an idea that, okay, we think this is what's going to happen. But over time, when you build the relationships, you get to exchange ideas. You get to witness the kind of ebb and flow of what's happening market-wise. I get to exchange my ideas from experts I've been working with who are uh, both – business partners and financial partners. So if it's more of a relationship over time, it's to me a lot more successful. And that's, that's actually what's been, what I've been able to experience through my business dealing. So that is kind of like what I'm doing in terms of combining my skills as a pilot. Obviously there's a lot of attention to detail. There's a lot of attention to regulations and all those things keep us safe. Right? So in the business standpoint, you also have legalities, regulations to keep you safe, to keep your business safe, to keep you protected from any, you know, eventual collapse or downfall. And it's the same for us. So, you know, I try to transfer the skills quite frequently and, that, and that's been successful for me so far.
0: I'd like to know what some of the greatest misconceptions we might have about your scene across the water and some of the misconceptions, the communities you come from have about investing in Africa there must be an information gap otherwise we'd see tons of you guys out here
2: there are obviously gross generalizations stereotypes that exist in both directions I'll speak to those that I'm familiar with in in both instances so for you know what you what you I guess would glean from the U.S. media or or from what your perspective is that is projected from the U S is that it's just opulent and that <laughs> all of the communities doing are doing excellently and great, including the African-American com- community and that um, there's really maybe not a interest for uh, anyone from, from that hemisphere or from North America to come and do business uh, on the continent, wherever we are on the continent. Right? So there's kind of like this, this uh, divide that is, uh, artificial. In fact, yeah, it's a digital divide, right? So the, so the media that you, you receive here and that we receive is also very different. Now, why there aren't more, I would say, people mm-hmm. who get the inkling to come to the continent to do business is because, for one, there's very few channels for smaller groups to do that. And we're talking about small to medium enterprises. Yeah, so the multinationals is their playground and they've been doing it and they have the expertise for for a long time. But the SMEs uh are not and they and they are de- they're dealing with different challenges obviously and so you know for them to then take on a a global or multinational undertaking as a SME uh, might be too daunting to them or might they feel that way. But what I think what uh, Talib and I want to stress is that it is available and possible through the correct uh, channels and through the correct let's say, um, information, let's say you, you do have to do the research for your own, for your own self, uh, understand that the continent, the African continent is 54 countries. So, you know, that's quite a few in terms of, in terms of business. And each of those countries have a specialized, uh, history, have a specialized, uh, economy, uh, they're from currencies to, to, uh, to politics. Yeah. The pestle models and, and all these things. So do your due diligence, but understand that there are a few that, uh, could line up very well with the business that you already are running or already uh, are involved with. So once you get to those levels, it takes, and it also takes patience. So that could be also why some people are hesitant because they're maybe uh, are not looking at a, a longer enough horizon, I think, uh, to, to go into, you know, maybe developing something in a multinational uh, capacity.
0: Something we spoke about off mic, this uh, mentality that doesn't, that almost a hit and run mentality as opposed to, you know, a farming mentality. That's the mentality that brings you here to be here a while and grow something, massage value out of it. Tell me, be honest. You you packed an elephant gun, right? Because you you hadn't been here before. You thought, you <laughs> thought you'd be off the plane, and you. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of expectations did you have? And and I know your expe- your expectations would have been colored by friendships with with people. And how different would
1: your expectations have been had you not come for, or been exposed to the, the network you now have? Yeah, Brian didn't give me a lot of heads up. I've had you know one of my business mentors who lived in Cape Town and Johannesburg for years has told me about the country but the media doesn't do a good job of explaining what it looks like aesthetically here when we had lunch by the Woolworth around the corner uh, I forgot the name of that neighborhood I was sh- morning sh- I was shocked to see so many high-end vehicles right and the girls hopping out of the cars these African girls and uh, red bottom shoes and Range Rovers and and we've gone out socially to hang out at the clubs and I mean they're popping bottles and, you know, hanging out and, you know, and, uh, and enjoying that lifestyle, right? There's a, there's a lot of misconceptions on what the people look like here, what they eat, where they spend their money, where they work. I mean, there's so many misconceptions here
3: that... Um, History, basically, that you're looking at an apartheid and decent township, but the problem is that you've seen only the top end of the market. You, ever, you haven't been to a township. You're going to Soweto. We're going to Soweto, you're going to go to Vilkazi Street, to the museum of uh, Nelson Mandela. That's where the touristic area It's so nicely, and Mapunia Mall and we're this.
1: We're going to go to the hood. We're, we're, we're going to go in the hood. Like, it's all good. It is, it is all good. We're going
3: to, yeah,
1: we're, we're going to walk and we're going to make a right and we're going to go deep, you know. And um, we're not going to go too deep, but yeah. I mean, I, I lived in East Baltimore, all right. If I see something worse in areas that I live in, East Baltimore, I wouldn't be like, "Well, damn." Um, but you know, there's so many misconceptions out here. But and I'm a proponent of people being managing their own media, though. So I can't accept all of the blame for my misconceptions because we're now in a world where I mean, we're reporting a podcast live, sitting outside, and there's five tablets on the phone and there's GoPro cameras here. So I, I encourage. Uh, more of my African brothers and sisters to control their own media and push it in our direction so that we can know more of the nuances of the culture.
3: I'm saying that when you see in Sumptons, they get the perception that everything is, looks like America. Sumptons can be a suburb of any, of any city in Cleveland or whatever. but there all other millions of people that still live in townships and stuff, and that's the, yeah, that's the thing that for people, you don't see it because unless you go there specifically, if you go to La Sun City and Lion Park and this, all you see is tourist area, yeah. which is very fixed and very, you know, nicely or up a uh, up, uh, first world thing. So that's really what probably when they go to the townships now, they will see the other side. Yeah, of.
2: So, uh, again, like, I want to talk about the parallels, you know. So when you, we don't, I, I don't speak disparagingly about any uh, communities because there's layers and layers and layers in history about each of those communities and why it could be, um, you know. W- where it is in, in comparison to other parts of the community. So I want to talk about some communities in the U.S. Uh, that are juxtaposed against some high-end areas, you know, like in, in Los Angeles, in South South Central Los Angeles or Compton. Uh, you know, these are areas in, in Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, what's going on right there with the uh, water crisis. Right. Uh, in uh, any number of areas in the United States, w- w- we could make some parallels to what we see uh, materially here, was going on in uh, in Johannesburg and surrounding areas. So there's layers to it. You know, there's there's a political history that, that's there. There's a revolutionary kind of uh, uh, spirit in a lot of these communities and an evolution, let's say, from what happened at, at very critical points in time. The L.A. riots in the United States, people aren't familiar, they should uh, review it. The uh, Detroit riots, the uh, Tulsa-Oklahoma bombings, the Rosewood Massacres and, and all those things are, are what create the layers that exist that would explain or help to contextualize what you have going on with, uh, Alex, for example, just up against Santon, uh, with, you know, any number of other areas in the U.S. that we could talk about in Baltimore, uh, D.C. And again, not to disparage those areas, those are, there's layers to those, uh, instances and the people who are there, uh, don't choose those, uh, histories for the, for those specific, uh, zone zones, let's call them, you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, just another community, everyone who are in those, there's many people in those communities, um, are doing great work in terms of, uh, having those communities be viewed differently for one, have them have uh, many of them specifically in new Orleans have community gardens where the citizens c- can come and go to uh, public spaces, open spaces to, uh, plant food, for themselves and to also sell to uh, farmers in the community so there's a, a great amount of work that also goes on that we don't see when we just drive by and just pass you know like in passing and say oh wow that's uh that's that's so that's that's too bad you know like in ter- and so in those in those terms you know let's let's try to contextualize it and and maybe unpack the the layers yeah
0: interesting for context purposes alexandre's rumor to have created more black millionaires uh, than any other township in, in 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 south africa and of course so it would be like hey that's us but um i tend to believe it as well incidentally this podcast is syndicated to Alex FM, which is their easily one of the country's largest community radio stations at least uh second or second largest here in and so again it, it's crazy that part of the part of where they air is Santin right here and um the uh, one thing I'm very humble to is the fact that there's a very big difference between access and, uh, you know, and inclusiveness. Uh, while someone living in in Alex has technically access to everything Santan has to offer, they're not truly included. And th- that leads me to 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 my curiosity with the world you guys come from. um Coming from an African American context, uh, a minority context,
2: I just want to correct the origin. So I'm, I'm Caribbean-born from Trinidad and Tobago, but it's very, you know, important to, to note uh, the African descendants are from all walks of life and all and all parts of the world. And there's 400 million of us in the Western Hemisphere in North America, South America, Central America, uh, adjoining islands. And now, many of us have made, let's say, or our parents made the migration to to the United States, to Europe, to UK to gain that access that you just talked about, that is uh that was let's say inaccessible even 30 or 40 or 50 years ago in some sense depending on where you might have come from in a diaspora so we're a diaspora everywhere on the on the planet really but um for my background and also one of my partner's background we're both Caribbean from Trinidad and Tobago and um have also a lot of other friends who are let's say you know we don't have a nationalistic. Ideological issue in terms of you know where those okay so we don't separate ourselves by those national implications right so we're 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 a big community of uh, people so that's what we're trying to do is connect all those people in a way that allows us to you know come come here to sit with you and the same you could we'd invite you to New York to Harlem uh to Red Rooster which is owned actually by Ethiopian. Born Ethiopian by ancestry, born in Swedish, uh, Matthew Sam- Samuelson. So we're connected in many ways, and, and we can you know open up ourselves and our communities, and, and and just give you know kind of a background for each of us. So that's why each of us should be very versed on the background that you're in, be very be an expert on your area. If you don't, if you can't, for anyone else's, and then and then you can extend those uh, that information to anyone else in the community.
0: I believe strongly in that uh, coming to the to the table as it were at the world stage. And having something to offer as opposed to, you know, <laughs> a bull <bowl laughs> for everyone else's stuff, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, bringing it back to tech, you know, there's this, um, there's a snobbery around, you know, what qualifies firstly as a startup. Again, scale, quick growth, traction, whatever. Then there's a snobbery around tech startups specifically. What have been your experiences around those definitions and your rights to claim them or to to, to fly to fly under that flag so what do you think talib
1: so i am a proponent of business whether that's a tech startup or whether that's a traditional business i i have companies that work in both um i prefer physical goods that have tech components to them so for example our our next iteration of of luggage to life and autopilot will be tech enabled allows you to dock into gps and stuff like that but um i um i don't care as long as it makes money Right. There is a snobbery in the tech community about the way a company has to be built built in order for it to be credible. Uh, There's some merit to some of those conversations. But for me, it's not a yes or no uh, decision for me to get in the type of business. But to further, I think that what I'm most attracted to that are people that are building solutions that are viable within their communities. Um, just like the deal I explained earlier about Maven Hair, which solves for the nine billion dollar hair care industry, it's really a supply chain business because they have the relationship to be able to produce, uh, and procure the hair and they use tech simply to enable the transaction. But the real bulk of the, the, the money is being made on the supply chain side of the deal. So when you extract these deals and really think about what's viable within your community, I'd say, only look at tech as a way to enable the business to make more money versus just building the tech. I think it's very important for our entrepreneurs to think about fundamentally, what are you solving for? And does tech help you and enable you to do that more efficiently? If you check box yes, then spend more money, more time on the tech side. If not, just focus on the core of the business. Don't get lost in the sauce of users, and widgets and analytics and all that other stuff. If your business is not solid yet, which I think can a significant time uh, can be analyzed and done without tech. Tech is an enabler for you to make a more efficient business.
0: And so, Brian, given you're you, you self-confessed um, details-oriented person, is that not a danger sometimes in, in in your approach to doing business that you can get really bogged down? Do you not need more pragmatic entrepreneurial thinking like Talib seems to, to have in order to make it work?
2: Uh, there's four forces of flight, right? So there's lift, there's gravity there's propulsion and there's drag right so that means that we have we have to have balance in order to remain in flight so no matter how uh, powerful the vessel is no matter uh, let's say how also there's some vessels you look at them and you, you don't think that they can fly right because they look like you know machines that just aren't equipped to take flight so I would say with you know. Uh, Referring to that analogy that you do need balance, you need a pragmatic approach, you need someone that is uh, within your organization. If you're if you're an entrepreneur, or startup, whether you're individual or not, you need to definitely address the pragmatism and the uh, traditional business uh, items in order for you to be successful. But if you're one of those people who are very innovative and very creative, then don't abandon that because you feel pressure from the ecosystem or the society or the startup culture to be a certain way. There's, there's room, I think, in that space for you to be yourself and also be successful. But I think there does require a balance between the two.
0: Okay, so we, ha- we have to wrap this up because you have uh, townships to go see. <laughs> so we're to awaits be kind to the people a lot of good folk out there
2: yeah do you want to plug someone Yeah. so really quickly we spoke a lot about um, the business side but we also want to talk about the outreach side so we I, I have one of my uh, let's say investment partners and financial partners who has uh, what's called Jelani Girls and Jelani Women both are outreach organizations uh, both are not-for-profit organizations that want to empower girls and women throughout the world uh, but Right now, the Jelani women founder, Ashley Company is on the continent. She's in South Africa at the moment, uh, reaching out to other people in the same space and to also girls, young girls, women who, you know, are looking for areas of, uh, of, of empowerment, like looking for places to go for girls' code, for example, math and math and science enrichment. Uh, so I think that's very important in the same, you know, capacity of uh, the business side, but also There's a few of us, including uh, my my good friend uh, Jelani, uh, who just walked up, uh, who Mm -hmm. will be doing in combination, in parallel with their businesses here. His his is apparel, but he's already stated that in in parallel with that, he wants to do outreach. And that means education and that means financial literacy education. That means, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, the layers that are going to be required for the citizenry from now for the next 20 years to be empowered and to be and to continue to grow and enhance themselves
0: so um i want to ask you guys one last thing what do you consider the most exciting new frontier stuff out there tech wise and my, maybe not so new frontier maybe not so green fields and perhaps not even anything you're involved with like what are you excited about uh, looking into the next five
1: ten years i am um, i'm most excited about um uh, virtual reality I, I think it's awesome it's the greatest thing ever I, got, I just gave him a Google Cardboard. I mean, that's not virtual reality per se, but it's just to play with, man. I've got a chance to wear an Oculus Rift. I can't wait to get back because we have a new company that um, is doing VR production and the American Underground, the co-working space that I am working on. I can't wait to get back and talk to that person and make something. But specifically, I like the ramifications of it on, on medicine and primarily psychological, um, the uh, ability to, to be able to create um realities that will help people temper um the various psychological ailments. I think it's very interesting. Um another one I'm I'm still IoT, right? But specifically I like the idea of smart homes. I'm working with a real estate developer right now in Washington, DC, who has uh seven product projects that he's working on, um uh, single family and um multi unit properties where he wants to make the house as smart as possible. So when you walk in there's a dashboard that lets you know all the efficiency of the entire property. Um, I love those two things. And, uh, and I like everything Elon Musk does. He's ours, bro. He's ours. <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't look like it, but yeah. He, he's ours in
0: some form. Okay. So Brian the virtual reality thing just, I, I don't get it because I mean, we, we, we barely do well with the reality we have. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to help. Now. I say that tongue in cheek, of course. Yes. Uh, when I'm being operated on and it's, it's benefited me and all the research is paying off, I'm sure I'll be very grateful for all the advances. But what what what's what's exciting you at the moment, Brian? Although
2: I'm not like you know, I'm not a tech guy traditionally. You could say. I, I mean, you could say that I am. I fly the most advanced. Machines in the world. Actually, you could you could say that
1: I am. That's one thing that I want to interject. Right. Is that like just within the past four years has tech specifically meant computer coding. Right. Let's back up. We're really talking about engineering and people who have an engineering mindset when they're creating things. So when I'm approaching when I'm talking about tech and I'm talking about tech education, I'm not specifically talking about computer coding. I'm not talking about lines of CSS and HTML specifically and apps. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about engineers, right? Whether that's auto, whether that's air, whether it's aerodynamics, which I guess is air, right? But anything that requires you to build something, right, that has a technical component to it or the people that I want to work with, develop relationships, nurture.
0: I like that. This business major likes what you just said. Because <laughs> I, otherwise I don't belong here either. <laughs> so, okay. So really quick
2: uh, on the on the tech frontier uh what i like is uh space travel you know we used to think that air travel wasn't uh possible but now we take uh jets 17 hours in flight at once and travel you know many 7 8000 kilometers at a time so i really like that would you uh do that mars trip and never come back uh no uh, but if you want but if you if that's your thing uh, I, I, I'd say go for it. you never know. You maybe start, start a new, uh, community on Mars. But, um, so I will say though, in the media space and tech space, I do like, uh, what Atomos is doing. I like what the, uh, red camera Atomos. These are companies that do specifically like cameras, camera bodies. So 6K. They're, they're, yeah, they're, so they're, they're kind of stretching it out in terms of like what's happening from, from the standpoint side of those film cameras and lenses, right? That we use now in, micro uh sizes that used to be very used to take up a whole room so that uh capacity tech, the drones the ability to do lots of things with that like uh you know from mapping to uh market research to delivery to home delivery so i think there's a lot of a a lot to happen with the uh the aerial space and i'm attached to the aerial space obviously because i'm a pilot so I, i like all those things to bombing nations? I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't do that. <laughs> Fantastic. No, we don't have drones doing that. No, 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 no. No drones doing that. Just drones for for uh, humanitarian purposes only.
0: Drones for good. Drones for good, fellas. Thank you so much for joining us on the African Take Roundup. Um, we look forward to uh, hanging out, perhaps on your side of the ocean, and uh, look, uh, looking forward to having you back. Uh, and and really good stories. And w- as and when anything unfolds, that's worth talking about. We want to know about. You know where to find us. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us. We really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. I'm loving a
0: uh, African Tech Roundup.